Okay, let's open our Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and tonight we'll consider verses 12 through 20. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. In verses 12 through 17, we'll see a, Paul give Timothy a positive encouragement, a positive encouragement, and then in verses 18 through 20, he gives them a negative warning. First, a positive encouragement. Second, a negative warning. Timothy was a fellow who, like most of us, needed encouragement from time to time. He had a very difficult ministry. He had followed the Apostle Paul, pretty difficult to do. But Timothy's ministry, like everybody else's ministry, is to people. Uh, and that can be difficult sometimes because we're all different. We all have uh, different points of view. We all have different interests. Some, this may be a, a bit of a surprise to you, and I'm gonna, you'll see that the book of 1 Timothy, uh, while written to the entire church to teach us how to behave in the household of God, will have some very helpful insights for pastors. So, and I'll share those from time to time, even though you're, you may not be in pastoral ministry, you'll get a little bit of insight into the ministry. But sometimes pastoral ministry is, is uh, the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I, I pinch myself sometimes. It's just this incredibly easy of a job God gave me. And then other times it's not quite so easy. You know, other times it's, it's quite a challenge. And um, the reason it's a challenge is because you work with people in the ministry. And people who are saved by God's grace, people for whom Christ also died, but people who also still maintain their own sin natures, uh, people who have different desires, uh, people who have trouble with unity. That there's a reason why our Lord prayed for unity right before he uh, was crucified. There's a reason why Paul writes Ephesians and asks for unity within the church. And so there will always be, there will always be conflicts in any local church. Uh, the one way to measure the health of a local church is, is if the conflicts are kept to a minimum. And if they're not allowed to explode into problems that end up creating fissures in the church or a spirit of disunity in the church. And so it's, it's within that context that Paul is writing Timothy, in, particularly in verses 12 through 17, to give him a positive encouragement. Because Paul knew the kind of problems that Timothy would face in Ephesus, for Paul had already pastored in Ephesus. Or he had, he had uh, done pastoral ministry there. Anyway, Paul's an apostle. But he had performed ministry, the ministry of a pastor there. He, he knew many of the people. He knew the kind of troubles. He, he knew the kind of trials that Timothy would have. I'm sure he knew certain people at the church that, that he had to, that perhaps he had had trouble with himself. Uh, people who were well-meaning people, good people, people that, that Christ loved, but people who may just have given Paul himself trouble from time to time. And so knowing that, and, and knowing that Timothy would now be working with those people, because Paul has left him behind while he's moved on, Paul writes this section to show him that if God could work with somebody like Paul, and Paul is speaking, Paul is saying, if God could work with somebody like me, if God can transform my life, knowing who I was and what I used to do, what his, what his previous, if he had had to put down on some sort of pastoral application, your, your previous occupation, killed Christians, persecutor of the church. Uh, that, might, that might not go very far. Most of us wouldn't hire him, right? You've probably seen that old joke floating around the Internet that probably the only person who would have got hired would have, would have been Judas. Maybe you've seen that, maybe you haven't. But Paul probably wouldn't have been hired for hardly any, any, any pastoral ministry because of his past. And what Paul's going to say in verses 12 through 17 is... 
that if God could transform me, then he can transform anybody. But what Timothy had to ever keep before him was that it was God who was going to ultimately do the transforming. Timothy couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. John, who follows Timothy later on, he's not able to do it. I can't do it. I can't transform you. I can, I can be used as an instrument of God to, to be a part of that process. But transformation, spiritual transformation is spiritual transformation. It comes from the Holy Spirit working inside a person and changing them. And Paul says, if God can change me, he can change anybody that it is you're working with. And then in the last part of this, he's going to give us two names. It's interesting how sometimes in Christianity we hesitate to give names. Now, now we dance all around it, and we, we, we report it in such a way that everybody in the room knows who we're talking about. You know, you know how we do that sometimes? But we don't give the name, because you know, we're afraid to do that. Well, Paul wasn't afraid to do it. He's an apostle, and he, did, he does this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He mentions two people, two people who, in the view of most expositors, me included, were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that went bad. And so what Paul's going to say is, if he can change me, he can change anybody. However, there will be people, the final warning is, there's going to be people that aren't going to change. In fact, well, actually, they are going to change, but they're going to change from better to worse, rather than from worse to better. So this is one of the encouragement parts of this epistle. There will be others. Read along with me, if you will, in verses 12 through 17. And I think now, with that context, you'll see what Paul is doing here. He says, I thank Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost, or I am first of all. And yet, for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just as a matter of curiosity, you read verse 17, you recognize the hymn title there. You see where that hymn, where that hymn comes from. This is, this is the verse. Paul thanked God for changing him, then to enable Timothy to appreciate the fact that God can transform even the worst of sinners and enable his saints to accomplish supernatural feats. What precipitated Paul's testimony here was the difficult situation that Timothy faced in Ephesus made even harder by what we perceive as Timothy's personal tendency toward a, toward a bit of timidity. The evidence that Timothy tended to be timid, perhaps partly because of this opposition that he faced, will come out more later. So we'll deal with, with Timothy, Timothy's timidity, <laughs> say that fast, Timothy's timidity a little bit later on in the epistle. But, but, but Paul, a bit of autobiographical material from the Apostle Paul. Here we have some here. We have a lot in, the, in the, his letters to the Corinthians, particularly 2 Corinthians. We have some in Philemon. Um, we have a lot in Philippians. But here we have a little bit of autobiographical information. And we see that Paul, when he was killing Christians, 
Paul was killing Christians and at the same time thinking he was doing Yahweh a favor. Isn't that interesting? Paul was convicted that he was doing the God of Israel a favor by doing away with these blasphemers. That's what Paul means when he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me. Again, if, if, if God can change Paul, he can change anybody. And this is to be an encouragement to Timothy in ministry. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. God could see down the corridors of time. He knew what kind of person Paul would be if given the opportunity to minister. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, now, Paul thought he was doing the right thing, but Paul later understands that he was blaspheming Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what happens on the, on the Damascus Road. You know, Jesus Christ says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Me, Jesus Christ. Paul, why are you doing this to me? And a persecutor and a violent aggressor. This term, violent aggressor, comes from the, the, the term hubris. It's a, it's a, it's a Greek term based term that's actually come into English. It, it indicates pride or arrogance. Perhaps you've heard that before, maybe not uh, regularly, but if, if, if you watch William F. Buckley, you've heard him use that term before. Hubris means pride. And, and here it's translated violent aggressor. New, uh, New International Version translates this violent man, but it means a proud and haughty man, much like in our study of the minor prophets in the people to whom Amos was writing, they had become very prideful. And as a result of that pride, remember last Sunday, or Sunday before last, we found out, and last Sunday too, we found out that they, based upon their pride, they also became violent. And that makes sense, because if I'm a selfish person, that's what pride is. If I'm a selfish person, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my way, and including running right over you, if that's what it takes. Because it's about me, it's not about you, if I'm a prideful person. So this word, which is a form of the word hubris, comes to be, in, into English, translated a, a violent man or a violent aggressor. And yet, in verse 13, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul had uh, poured out blasphemy, persecution, and violence on God's people. And in return, God poured out grace, trust, and love to the Apostle Paul. Again, Paul, it is obvious that, and by his own testimony, Paul wasn't, wasn't acting in his own mind against the God of Israel. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he wasn't. Now, just thinking you're doing the right thing is not good enough. There are a lot of people out there today, a lot of believers, very fine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that think they're doing the right thing. But it doesn't mean that they are. There are a lot of people that think they're doing the right thing for Allah, who is not Jehovah, who is not Yahweh, by the way. And, and the first people that would tell you that would be Islamists. I should, I should take a quick pause in, in parenthetical statement here. That if, a lot of times the press would like to say, well, isn't, isn't Allah the, the God of the Christians? I mean, why can't you? No, Allah is not the God of the Bible. And the first people that would tell you that are Muslims. They, they, would, they would get violently angry with you if you tried to say Allah was Yahweh. They, they don't agree with that at all. And by the way, neither should we. They're, they're not one and the same. They are, they are different. And Allah is not simply just a word for God. 
it, it carries an entirely different meaning, an entirely uh, different connotation, along the same lines that the, the Jesus of the Jesus freaks of the 60s is not the Jesus of the Bible. But there are well-meaning Islamists, but that doesn't mean that they're right. But here, Paul thought he was serving God. He thought he was serving Yahweh. In verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So in spite of the fact that Paul poured out blasphemy, persecution, and violence on the people of God, God pours out grace, trust, and love for the Apostle Paul. I also love the way that Paul mentions grace and mercy. Um, these are two very similar terms. But the best way that I have ever come to understand these in, in a way that is, uh, can be communicated is this. When, when God shows mercy toward us, He's, he is not giving us the punishment that is due us. That's mercy. Not giving us what we have due. When he shows grace toward us, he is giving us something that we don't deserve in a positive way. So mercy, he's not giving us discipline or judgment that we deserve. Grace, he is giving us some blessing that we don't deserve. And Paul is said to be the apostle of grace. Paul, Paul understood that he didn't deserve all the blessing that he got. He was very, very clear about that. Are you? I mean, really? Are, are you really clear that you, we don't deserve, you or me, either one, don't deserve the blessing that God pours out upon us? Are we perfectly clear about that? I'm not so sure sometimes. And the reason I'm not so sure is because, because this hubris, this pride that permeates through Christianity as well. And the way I see it permeated is this way. I see people, while not expressing it in so many words, uh, ex expressing it by their actions, uh, and sometimes in words too. And that is that we almost feel like before we came to salvation, we were a little closer to being saved than perhaps person X over here. Because you know, I wasn't as bad as them. You see, I, I never murdered anybody. Uh, never, um, uh, never stole anything. Except for a piece of gum, which I did, a piece of gum from a grocery store at a, you know, sometime in the, you know, 11 or 12 year old area, and I felt guilty about it ever since. If that grocery store's still there, I ought to go back and pay the guy back. But, but I mean, uh, you know, but, but I was, I mean, that's, that's not bad. Really, it's not bad. It's never, never hardly got in trouble in high school when a lot of kids did. So maybe, I, of course I was saved before then, but, but maybe I'm a little closer to salvation than someone who did that. No. We're all, we all need grace. And we are all the recipients of grace. And Paul understood this. Now, I've, I also always want to address the culture when I can. There's a commercial that's out now that, that uh, is um, misleading, as it can possibly be. And it's on the subject of grace, and it's on the subject of unity, and it's on the subject of inclusion. And it's put out by, well, I, I, won't, I won't say, but, but you'll see it. And it's got... Um, it's got different people being, being a button being pushed. Everybody's sitting in a church. Have you seen this one? And a button is pushed, and certain people are expelled from the, from the, from the pew. Uh, yeah, it would be neat to have that. But, but, uh, and I've forgotten exactly all the people that are ex, you know, ex, expelled from the pew. Of course, this is a negative commercial. I mean, you, know, you have someone, uh, I forgot the first one. I know the second one or two homosexuals that are hugging each other, and then there's a thing where they're expelled, and then somebody else is expelled. And, uh, and the, the idea is, listen, we're not expelling anybody. You know, this, this church is, is for everybody. Apples and oranges, my friends. 
we're talking apples and oranges. There's one thing to say that the God's grace is poured out upon the, the entire human race, that all can come to Christ. It's another to tolerate sin within the church. So don't be, don't be confused by that particular uh, line of thinking. But the Apostle Paul was the Apostle of grace, and he understood grace than perhaps any, better than anybody of his, of his time. I don't know that for certain, but it certainly seems like he did. And I want to give you a key toward advancing toward maturity in your Christian life. This is one of the keys. You have to appreciate grace. If you don't appreciate grace, you haven't got to first base yet, much less second, third, or home plate, as some some people have that as their model. You haven't even begun to realize where you're going if you don't understand where we were. And it doesn't matter how good or bad you thought you were. We are all equally condemned before God. So Paul, the apostle of grace, demonstrates in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now in verse 15, seven times in the pastorals, Paul apparently alludes to statements that had become proverbial in the early church. And he writes them, and therefore, in, into Scripture, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then makes them uh, scriptural, the Word of God. Uh, these, these sayings, there's, there's one in Philippians that we studied at that point, but there's, there's seven different ones. But these sayings could have been part of early Christian hymns, or, or maybe even catechisms, or, or perhaps almost a training manual for new believers. And they could have even been restatements that Jesus made himself that aren't in the Gospels. For when, when Paul says we know that it's better, as Jesus used to say, it's better to give than it is to receive. Well, we don't have any record of that in the Gospel accounts, but, but Paul says Jesus said that. So um, here we have one of those occasions. It is a trustworthy statement. Now, this, is, this introduces something that was apparently well-known at the time. And what Paul's saying is, you know, you know I saw a billboard the other day, and they were, they were right about that. Now, there's no billboards back then, but that's what he means by saying it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So this statement that was going around the church at the time was correct, that Jesus Christ came into the world, into the world to save sinners. Now, let's, let's stop there for a minute, and then we'll get to Paul himself, his own testimony. He came in the, into the world to save sinners. We've studied before that there were two primary reasons Jesus Christ came into the world. The, the first one was to save sinners. The second one, and I'm not saying it's any, any less of a, a priority, but it, it, it usually takes back seat, and that is to, to uh, reveal the Father to mankind. But what Jesus came to do was to save sinners, somebody who recognized they had a need. People sometimes will say, is, is there a condition of salvation where people have to admit that they're a sinner before they can become saved? Well, actually, there's technically there's only one condition that's ever given for the, to receive the forgiveness of sins and also to receive eternal life, and that's faith alone in Christ alone. But it makes logical sense that a person, before they're going to accept salvation, they've got to realize that they have something that they need to be saved from. So if you want to call it a precondition, that would be perfectly fine. But that's what Jesus came to do. And Paul understood that. And now remember the context. Paul is using himself as an example of one who was as bad as they come, and God could change him, so the people that Timothy's having trouble with, he could change them too. Remember that. So in context, Jesus came into the world of safe sinners, among whom I am foremost. We might ask, I've asked myself this question too, uh, knowing all the people 
that have been sinners in this world. Having, having read just a little bit about Joseph Stalin or um, Fidel Castro or Paul Pot or Mao Zedong or, or uh, you, you fill in the blank, these, these people who have literally murdered or ordered the murder of millions of people. Uh, Stalin said at one point it just becomes a statistic. You, know, you don't even call it murder anymore. How could Paul say he was the worst of sinners? Now, and if you say, well, that's our time, what about his time? Well, what about his time? Think of Nero, I mean, the biggest waste of oxygen that's ever walked walk this planet. Nero was an evil, evil man. Now, he didn't start off that way. Nero in the late 50s, now by the time Paul writes this, Nero's starting to get going a little bit. But in the, in the late 50s, it was, um, was kind of neutral. I mean, he, he wasn't a good guy, but he didn't start really getting bad till later. But he was a bad guy. I mean, he, he burned most of Rome, and it's well understood by historians now. He burned most of Rome because he wanted to rebuild it, and then when people found out he did it, he had to blame the Christians for it. And many people died. Nero was, was so perverse, he had his own mom killed. He had his, and he had his, tutor, his favorite tutor killed. Perhaps you remember how he had his mom killed. He, he, wanted, he wanted her gone because she was an overbearing mom. Sent her on a little cruise. Had the ship wrecked on purpose. Blew the ship up, had it wrecked on purpose. His mom grabs a hold of one of the pieces of wood from the ship, makes it back to shore. Makes it to shore. Takes the first transport she can get back to Rome to tell her beloved son, I survived the accident. When she walks in the room says, Son, I've survived the accident. He turns to somebody and says, Kill her. And they run her through with a sword. That's Nero. And, and if, if you really, I mean, this is history, if you really want to know, Nero was so perverse that he, he, he married another man in front of the Roman Senate. He, by, by virtue of the Praetorian Guard, made the Roman Senate watch the event where he married another man and then consummated the marriage in front of the Roman Senate. You see why they hated him? They may have been pagans, but, but they, they had some sensibilities to, to themselves. And Paul says here, I'm the foremost sinner. Now, what does he mean by that? He can't mean the same thing that we might think he would mean. For I'm, gonna, I'm putting my money on Nero. If, if we've got to do Paul or Nero, I'm a Saul of Tarsus or Nero, I'm going with Nero. Yes, Saul of Tarsus killed people, but Nero killed a whole lot more. And Nero, uh, Saul was at least a moral man other than the murders. You know, <laughs> other, other, than, other, than, other than that slight detail, you know, he was, he was a moral man. But he thought he was doing the right thing. I mean, as a matter of fact, he was ultra-moral in the, in the Jewish sense. No, he, does, he doesn't mean that he's committed more sins than anybody else. Obviously, that can't be what it is. Actually, the word that he uses here really, really means, of, among whom I am first. But that still doesn't help. But just knowing what the word means doesn't do a lot for us as well. I think we have to think a little bit beyond this and, and, and consider... What Paul, Paul, what Paul might mean when compared to other people of his age. Not even comparing him to Pol Pot or, or Hitler or, or, or Stalin. Just what about comparing him to Nero? This is what I think the Apostle Paul meant. And at least this is my understanding of this passage. Paul had a sensitivity to sin that not necessarily everybody had. When he says, I, I'm first amongst sinners, what he, what he meant was, I, I know the depravity of my own heart. I, I know how evil I could be. You see, and that's part of his understanding of grace. 
too. He knew that when he was evil, he was exceedingly evil. And he realized that sin is sin before God. Whether it's Nero doing what he did in front of the Roman Senate, or Paul chasing down Christians and throwing them into jail. All sin is exceedingly sinful in God's eyes. Now granted, there are some sins that require a greater punishment. And we all ought to be happy about that. You know, gossip, while it's equally sinful to the holiness of God, equally offensive to the holiness of God, doesn't require the same penalty as, say, uh, murder. Murder and gossip don't, don't require those same penalties. And we should be very happy that they don't, because most all of us would be uh, dead. Uh, and Paul gives lists like that. We like to pick out a few things and say, aren't those people bad? And they don't realize he covered us in the list as well. No, Paul is, Paul is just saying, I, Paul is saying, I have a great sensitivity to my own depravity. Some people say that, and they don't really mean it. You know what I mean. You know, some people will tell you how bad they are, and they'll say, you know, I tell you what, I had a guy, I had a guy do this one time. I tell you what, I want your forgiveness. And he told this to a group of folks. I have done something absolutely terrible. And I'm thinking, what did he do? You know? <laughs> I mean, so was everybody else. You know? like, well, what did, I don't know what he did. And uh, so he, I mean, he almost starts weeping in front of this assembly of, of uh, believers. And uh, he, he goes on and on and on about he's going to beg, he's going to tell us in a minute what it was he's going to you know beg our forgiveness and this is the amongst the worst things that he has ever done. And finally, I got a little disgusted with it, but I, I stayed and listened to it as well. And he told us what it was. The week before, when we had assembled together, he had told a joke that if you were a total idiot, you might have misconstrued as a racist statement. Now you would have to be living on another planet to do it, but. He's, you know, I, I, and I, you know, I certainly didn't mean it as that, but you know, it, it's possible that it could have been misconstrued. Now, wait a minute. Uh, that's, not the, that's not what Paul, the Apostle Paul was doing. When the Apostle Paul was saying, I know my own depravity, he's not doing that. That guy, in my view, was, was telling, this is the worst thing he's ever done? I don't think so. I think you're doing something else that's worse right now, and it has to do with hubris or pride. But the Apostle Paul was honest, honest about it, and he understood sin and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that's what he means when he says, I'm the foremost. He doesn't mean that he had committed more sins than Nero, he, or more sins than Peter, or more sins than John, or more sins than Timothy. He's just saying, I'm very sensitive about it. I understand my own depravity, and Christ had to die for me just as much as he would have had to die for Nero. In verse 16, and yet, in spite of the fact that he's first among sinners, and yet for this reason I found mercy. I wasn't given the punishment that I deserved. In order that, in me as the foremost, the same idea again, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If you wonder why I, I use that phrase from, from time to time, that we trust the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us our sins and to grant us eternal life, this is the passage that I get that phrase from. The more mature a believer is, the more that believer will recognize his own sinfulness. Now, the penalty of sin was dealt with on the cross, no question. But sin continues. It's, it's a subject all throughout the epistles, which were written after the cross. And I also want you to note here, before we leave the subject and get to the doxology, in verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Did you notice the tense of that verb? 
He, he doesn't say, among whom I was, does he? We have, to, we have to do careful observation. Among whom I am. Now, he's talking about as a person who is, this is written in 63-ish, uh, 63-ish. He's going to be executed five years from now. The Apostle Paul is, uh, let's put it this way. If, if throughout the rest of my life I achieve half the maturity that he had by the time of the, the, the 63 came along, I'm going to be, feel very blessed. And he's saying at that particular time, he is protos, or the first amongst sinners. So it cannot be his own particular behavior at that point. It's his own sensitivity to the sinfulness of sin. So while the penalty of sin was dealt with on the cross, the issue of sin continues to be one, and it was even one in Paul's life, even right at that moment. Now, I can't, uh, I can't pass by this doxology, again, without telling you, immortal, invisible, God only wise, you probably can tell. It's one of my favorite hymns. <laughs> I, I love it. One, one, for one thing, it's easy for me to sing, <laughs> as opposed to some other hymns which are a little bit more difficult. But uh, it's also scriptural, and this is one of the passages that, that certainly would have these uh, characteristics in it. Now to the king, or to the, uh, to the sovereign, um, the one who is eternal, the one who is immortal, the one who is invisible, but there, the only God. And this this is the doxology that was probably also part of the early church's worship. Um, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, as we finish these first verses, we understand that God, uh, in his eternality, in his immortality, in his sovereignty, he proposes, or rather, man proposes, God disposes. We might can come up with great ideas, but he's the one that's got to get them done. God is the one that's going to change people's hearts in Ephesus. Timothy, you're, you're a conduit of my grace and mercy, but you're not the Holy Spirit. You're to be there to be used of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that has to affect the transformation. This is what happened with Paul before his con- conversion. He, he, Paul tried to destroy the church. God established the church. And it, in, an, in a bit of divine irony, the very person who was attempting to destroy the church is the person that God used to establish it in, in a way that hardly anybody else was ever used. <laughs> we just think we can manipulate God. Uh, it's not going to happen. Um, now, in the last three verses... Um, I want you to see briefly this negative warning. This won't take long. But we see some who did not do what they were supposed to do. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Again, he's his son in the faith. He's already mentioned this in the epistle. It doesn't mean he's his biological son. In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Uh, These prophecies are not mentioned anywhere else. Somebody had apparently at one point in time predicted under the ministry of the Holy Spirit that, the, that Timothy would be someone who would be greatly used of God. But look at the last phrase, that you may fight the good fight. This terminology is used of the Spirit, and it's not by accident. This, the spiritual life sometimes is a fight. It is a struggle. It is a battle. And it ought not to be that way. If believers didn't have old sin natures, it wouldn't be. The, the fight, the fight, the good fight that Paul's talking about is not against unbelievers. It's against other believers in the church. That's what he's talking about. Now, it's a shame, but it's a reality. 
that the, the struggle takes place within the local body. And this is what Timothy had to do, and he had to fight the good fight. It is a struggle. And it's a struggle that can be won, provided God's on your side. But if Timothy's trying to do it with his own ingenuity, with the power of positive thinking, with Norman Vincent Peale, it's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit has to affect the change in people. Timothy was not going to be able to. As he fought the good fight, he should continue to trust God and maintain a good conscience. Look at verse 19. Keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Now, some, some folks, not many, as I said in the beginning of this, most expositors hold that Hymenaeus and Alexander were, were believers who went bad. This is why we would. But they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Apparently, they had the faith first and then crashed. Otherwise, it would be difficult to use this terminology. So first we have the positive example, the Apostle Paul, one who was the first among sinners that can be transformed into a useful servant of the Lord, one who tried to destroy the church, was used to establish a church. Now we have an example of people that may not change. You're not going to get 100%. That's just the way it works. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Dwight Pentecost, John Wolver, Chuck, Chuck Swinnell. It doesn't matter because some people reject the message. And that's a reality. And so Timothy can't take that personally. And he's going to give two names. There are two people that I can give you an example, Paul says, because I know them, that they suffered shipwreck. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, this, this is something uh, you, you probably want to make part of your prayer tonight, that I thank you, Lord, that this is not something that Bruce can do. <laughs> this is only something that an apostle could have done to handle somebody, hand somebody over to Satan. I'm glad I don't have that ability. I wouldn't be able to handle it. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, that's one particular gift in this. It's just best that only the apostles had that because they were specially gifted to do it. Handing someone over to Satan probably meant that Satan had permission to inflict some illness or disability over the one who was doing evil, somewhat similar to Job chapter 2 and verse 6. It also could picture a life outside the fellowship of the church, which would then be in Satan's sphere. So what Paul may be saying is, I booted them out of the church. I booted them out of the fellowship of the church. And uh, since our time is, is just about up, I'll, I will deal with some of that uh, as we go on through the, the epistle of both uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. But there are times when, when that's unavoidable. Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians, and he dealt with it in another way in, in 2 Corinthians. There are times when that has to happen, and um, thankfully, I'm, I'm so thankful that that um, is a rarity, an extreme rarity. One thing we also see here is in, our, in some closing comments, and that is that perseverance in faith and good works doesn't seem to be inevitable here, because they did suffer shipwreck with regard to their faith. Um, there are also many warnings that warned the believer not to do that, which would make the Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints a little bit more difficult to sustain. Now, um, quickly, briefly, three points of summary about the first chapter, and then we'll close. This first chapter deals with matters of vital importance to every Christian since we are all ministers of Christ. We may not all be in pastoral ministry, but we're all ministers. And uh, as a minister, whether it's to your own family, you, you may pour your heart out to your own children. And 
and some reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you may be kicking yourself from now till eternity and think, I could have done something different. Not necessarily. People have to make their own choices. It breaks, it breaks our hearts, but people still have to make their own choices. You're all ministers. You may not be in pastoral ministers, but we are all ministers for Christ. So this, this does teach us how to behave ourselves within the whole household of God. But they are especially relevant to those who are church leaders. Now these are the three points of summary as I close. In the communication of God's word, our primary responsibility, I mean our meaning the pastoral primary responsibility, um, we should avoid speculation and seek to represent God's intention accurately. When we studied that, I told you that I'm not going to argue about trivial things. And I stand by that. I'm not going to argue about trivial things. We can dis- discuss them if you want, and then if, then if you don't agree, or if, if it's trivia, let's just agree to disagree. But I'm, but I'm not going to. There's too many non-trivial things that we need to discuss to argue over how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. I'm just not going to do it. i got enough gray here. There's no more room for any more. They're all gray now. They're all done. It's, it's capacity. It's filled up. The second point of summary, we can face our task optimistically since God has the power to transform even the worst of sinners into the greatest of servants. And the final point of summary, nevertheless, in spite of that fact, we should be careful not to go against the warnings of our consciousness consciousness and the Holy Spirit, which are programmed with God's word as we carry out ministry. Hymenaeus and Alexander are the example of someone who went against that and suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Well, that is our time. More on this as we get together in our next visit. Will, would you close us, please?